Welcome to the fifth GVALS event of the academic year. We're glad that you're here, but this is not the last GVALS event of the academic year. Um, on, I want to let you know that on Wednesday, March 20th, we're having our annual Voss lecture, and that is with Kevin Van Hooser, and he'll be speaking in chapel on that day, and then in here at 7 o'clock, uh, in the evening. So we hope that you'll come back and join us for the Voss Lecture on Wednesday, March 20th. But tonight, we're really happy to have Christopher Yuan with us, and Professor Jeff Schindel is going to come and introduce him for us. So please welcome Professor Schindel. Hey, Geneva! Are you guys ready for a wonderful presentation tonight? Good. Uh, it was a couple years ago, back in 2006, Mr. Schindel and I were at a conference at Indiana Wesleyan University. It was the first time we heard Christopher and his mom and dad. So this is how it played out. We're going to this Christian conference. It's in the morning. You know, Christian conference are. You sing. You do your thing. And Christopher's mom and dad got up and, and shared their testimony. We were completely blown away by that. I mean, we heard from Angela herself how she bought that one-way ticket to see her son and then end her life. We were in tears that morning. And I'm like, wow. And at the end of their testimony, they talked about how they left the Bible for Christopher and how he threw it into the trash. And now, you know how we are about the Bible here at Geneva. And I'm thinking to myself, that is really uncool, man. <laughs> you know, and, and, and then they kind of like they left it there. Right. And they went home and praying for Christopher. I'm like, man. I'm thinking to myself, what a punk, you know, that's what I thought. And I told Christopher, OK, I say, I thought he was a real punk, you know. And so the evening came and we do our Christian thing, you know, we're singing. And the punk gets up on stage. I'm like, I'm Mrs. Schindel. I didn't call her that. Mrs. Schindel. I said, there's the kid. And we listened to Christopher's testimony and we were like in tears throughout his testimony of how the power of God working in his life. We never heard anything like that before. So that was back in 2006. And over the years, I kept in contact with Christopher, did a couple projects and uh, had a couple key conversations. Uh, he helped me with some things here on campus. And uh, so we developed a really cool relationship over the years. Uh, when I heard his testimony, I thought, he has to be here at Geneva. You guys need to hear Christopher Yuan. This is his third time visiting our campus. And I am so happy that he is here tonight to share more uh, about his experience and how we can respond as Christians to those who are struggling with their sexuality. So, brother, it's all yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you, Father, that you have chosen us. That you have chosen us, Father, from before you even set the stars in their place. You knew us by name. Lord, we thank you that not only did you know us, you chose us, you called us, you called us to yourself. Thank you for everyone here at Geneva, students, staff, uh, faculty, staff, friends in the community. Lord, thank you for how you are working in our lives, how you have, have worked in our lives. God, continue to renew us, transform us for your glory. God, we praise you. Uh, we thank you. And we ask this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. 
There are few issues that are more relevant than the topic of homosexuality. But the unfortunate thing is, oftentimes as Christians, uh, we don't know how to respond. We're silent because we don't want to offend. We don't want to hurt feelings. We don't want to say the wrong thing. So as a result, we are silent or we say little or nothing. How do we respond well? If you were here in chapel, uh, you heard my testimony. I talked a little bit about singleness. Um, and my testimony, my mother's testimony, is first featured in my first book. Um, this next book is uh, the, my new book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. And that, my goal was to help us to begin with right thinking before we jump into right doing. Because I know generally we want to do right. We want to love Jump in and show compassion. But sometimes when that love has no foundation, when we try to do right without thinking right, we could be doing wrong. So what I wanted to do, what I wanted to do with my new book was to help us to think right. Have a, a, a robust theology of sexuality that doesn't just apply to our gay friend, but something that applies to everyone. Holy sexuality is good news for all. But it doesn't seem like good news for some. Many of your gay friends say, well, that isn't fair. God's commands just don't sound very good. And so as Christians, um, we also don't make being a Christian sound very appealing. We have a pretty bad reputation, as a matter of fact. There's a book that's called Unchristian that kind of reveals how bad we appear. Uh, young Americans were surveyed and they asked, were asked, what do you think about Christians? And what they found was staggering. We are viewed to be confusing, not accepting, boring, insensitive, out of touch, too political, old-fashioned, hypocritical, judgmental, and guess what's at the very, very top? anti Homosexual. Look at those percentages. Those not raised in the church, by far the highest. This book was published in 2007. I can almost promise you that percentage is even higher today. But what about you all, raised in the church? We teach you love the sinner, hate the sin, right? According to the survey, 8 out of 10 of you and your peers believe that we ourselves are anti-homosexual. And note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say anti-homosexuality. I-T-Y. Three letters, big difference. Homosexuality, more the topic. Homosexual, the person. So whether we like it or not, if you're a Christian, people view us to be against gay people. And that is wrong. The gospel is not against anyone. It's for everyone. Turning from their sins and turning to Christ. It's for all. But unfortunately, people's perception is their reality. So how can we do a better job at engaging on this topic recognizing what we're viewed as, hopefully showing others that that isn't true for all, that that 
some of these may be perception. How do we do a better job? Now, there's many ways that one might approach to have a Christian response to homosexuality. It could be looking at what's going on in government, public policy, or it could be approaching this as a developmental issue, delving into one's past, looking at what could have happened in one's childhood, or I think a really, probably the best way to approach this is using as our foundation the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we're all sinners. Not just some, not just a few. We're all sinners. And yet in spite of our sin, the God of the universe still loves us. And God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins so that not only will we be reconciled with Him, but we can be righteous because of Him, but we can have eternal life. I think that's a great foundation to have any sort of Christian response. That should be our foundation for everything. So how do we have a gospel-centered Christian response, not just to this topic, but to our loved ones and friends in the gay community? Well, my talk is going to center around four things, and the first thing has to do with our attitude. If you Actually, if you would like my notes, you could scan this QR code, um, get my notes. If you don't know what a QR code is, that's okay. Welcome to the 21st century. Um, this shortened URL will do. You can um, type that in uh, to your desktop or even your uh, mobile, mobile device, and you can see it. But there's going to be actually a lot of notes uh, if at the end you don't get it. Uh, this shortened URL should be at the bottom of all of uh, my slides. Uh, you'll be asked to sign up for Dropbox. You don't have to sign up for Dropbox. You can just say no thank you. So how do we do that? So basically, there are four things that I think um, I'm going to kind of be the pillars of my talk. The first one has to do with our attitude. The first one is that we need to be convicted about our own sin first. You know, oftentimes we address this issue as looking at the sin of others, pointing the finger at other people, while we need to actually look introspectively at ourselves. When I lived as a gay man years ago, I felt Christians were telling me that somehow gays and lesbians deserved a hotter place in hell. That Jesus had to hang on the cross a little bit longer for gays and lesbians. That's so far from the, far from the truth. It's sin, but it is not the worst sin. But yet oftentimes we treat it like it is. We treat it like the, un, you know, the, just the, the worst of the worst. The worst sin. It's sin, but it's not the worst sin. Oh, but it's an abomination, people will say. True. But the Bible also talks about it in Proverbs 6 that pride is an abomination. Dissension is an abomination. So when was the last time your friend was a little bit prideful and you say, you are abomination? Maybe we should, because when we do, we won't really trivialize sin that really grieves the heart of God. Oh, but I can't help it. You know, when I drive into Pittsburgh or go into Philly and it's during the summertime and I pass by the gay pride parade, that just makes me feel really uncomfortable. Some people even say it disgusts me. You know, what we see on television, all this. And I wonder that that feeling some people might have of discomfort or even disgust should actually remind themselves that it's just a fraction of what God feels when he looks at their own sin. 
and maybe even more, especially if we call ourselves Christians and we should have the Holy Spirit abiding in us. So our sin is just as odious in God's eyes than this sin. Because have you noticed how easy it is to be disgusted about someone else's sin? Oh, I can't believe what she's doing. I would never do that. Of course you couldn't. Because that's not your sin struggle. But I don't know if we're disgusted about our own sin as much as someone else's. Because when we are truly convicted about our own sin, you know what that normally leads to? It leads to humility. And I think humility is a fantastic place to start. A fantastic place to stay. A fantastic place to end. Humility. Because at the end of the day, my hope is to lead people to Christ. Amen? But I've never seen that done through a holier-than-thou attitude. Have you? You know, oh, I came to Jesus. This, this older lady, she was so pompous. Never. I've never, ever heard that before. That's not how it happens. It's, it's always people who are gentle, compassionate, people who are honest, broken about their own sins. That's what draws people, not a holier-than-thou attitude. So before we do anything else, let us... Check ourselves. Let's be interested. Let's look at ourselves in the mirror and make sure that we are convicted about our own sin first. Second, let's be consistent. And this is regarding, in, in three, three ways. First of all, regarding relationships. What's your relationship status? And I talked about this earlier today. I talked about this, about we have this imbalance between marriage and singleness, where marriage is seen to be better than singleness. Singleness is viewed to be second best, actually, or worse. And you might think, okay, I, I, I see that, especially as a single student. I see how the church is kind of, in essence, failing singles. So I do see that. But what does that have to do with my gay friend? Well, a lot, because if our message is God's truth to our gay friends, that it's not God's will for you to be in a same-sex relationship. What does that mean? To be single. Now. For a period of your time. Maybe the rest of their life. And if so, do we have a healthy place for singles to thrive in Christian community today? Not really. As a matter of fact, singles feel like second-class citizens. Singles just don't feel like they fit in. Look at, next time you go to church... And you get the church bulletins, just open it up and see what they have in there. Probably great programs for families, kids, great programs for couples, newlyweds, maybe empty nesters, and very few for singles. Sometimes they might have a singles group that I often feel like is like an afterthought, which they often call, you know what they call it? College and career group. Well, you know what I call it? The singles ghetto. <laughs> I don't know what to do with them. Let's just throw them all together in this one group. Like everyone all together. Like whether it's widows, never married, divorcees, single mothers, single dads. You know, just don't know what to do with them. Throw them all together. Call them college career group. Which often, unfortunately, end up being like the Christian meat market. Again, I mean, there's just, I don't know if we're like doing everything correctly. And we treat our singles just in the way we communicate. From the pulpit. 
How often do we hear messages on marriage? Quite often, right? Whether it's even just an illustration, and that's good. Keep doing that. But how often do we hear messages like on singleness alone, like entire messages on singleness? Or even good examples of godly single women, godly single men. As a matter of fact, a lot of our churches won't even hire a single man to be pastor. Which, if you think about it, if Jesus and Paul lived today, they wouldn't be able to serve in the majority of our evangelical churches. There's something wrong with that. We view singleness not in the way that the Bible does. We, we even equate singleness with loneliness. I think I talked about this earlier today. Singleness is almost the same as loneliness. That's what my gay friends tell me. Your God wants me to be lonely for the rest of my life. As if singleness is the same as loneliness. But let me tell you, the reason why I know it's not the same as loneliness is because I know some married people and they're still miserably lonely. <laughs> so marriage is not the cure to loneliness, no matter what they're telling you here at Geneva. No matter what t- your peers are trying to tell you, marriage is not the cure to loneliness. You know what it is? It begins with a relationship with God. That is the cure to loneliness, not another person. Your person that you're dating, your future spouse, is not your Messiah. There's only one Messiah, and His name is Jesus. And so let us live like that. I mean, and, and I'm not dissing marriage. See, this is the difficulty, because I can, I can talk very passionately, and I, I get very excited about things. And so sometimes people mishear me, that I'm, that, that I'm like just saying how, how, how a lot of times we have some misunderstandings on marriage and that we get singleness wrong, that they think that I'm dissing marriage like it's, like it's a bad thing. I'm not. Marriage is good. And we as a body of Christ need to continue to lift up the beauty and gift of marriage. But let me tell you what I think we've done. I think we have done that at the expense of singleness. So singleness, at best, is a consolation prize. I'm sorry you're single. I bet you might even have friends or people you know, maybe an aunt or someone who's never married, uh, maybe an older saint in the church. They've never been married and maybe they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s or more, heaven forbid. I bet you sometimes feel sorry for them. Christian singles don't need our pity. They need to be loved. They need to be shown that even though they might not have a spouse, children, a family of their own, you know what they do have that's even greater than sons and daughters? They have the family of God. Do you realize that the bonds that we have bound by physical blood, whether it's your father, mother, whether it's your brother, sister, whether if you have children of your own, these bonds bound by physical blood are really temporary. The only bonds that last are those bound by the blood of Christ. We, if you know Christ, we are brother, we are. Our sisters, we are family. But I don't know if we truly live like that. We play lip service to the term brother. We play lip service to the term sister. I really believe that if we began living as a family of God, many of these issues of loneliness, depression, 
could be mitigated. But we treat marriage like the end-all be-all. And I think back when you were kids. Remember when teachers would read you fairy tales? you remember that? How do, how do all fairy tales end? Right, well, first, they get married. And then they live happily ever after, right? You don't get a 10-year checkup, 20 on their marriage, see how they're doing, 30-year checkup. I mean, hopefully, they're still living happily ever after. But you know what the real lesson is? It is not marriage that should bring you ultimate contentment. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who should bring ultimate contentment. That is what we should be teaching our kids. Well, I have, I have this friend who was a missionary in China. She went to China. She was single. She was there for five years. She came back to the U.S. on furlough. She came back single, and when she was on furlough, she saw several of her friends that she hadn't seen in a long time. So when she connected and reconnected with her friends, they would ask similar questions like, tell me about China, about ministry there, tell me about your future ministry plans. And then we get to personal questions like, are you dating anyone? Do you have anyone special in your life? And each time she said, no, no, not yet. Do you know how some of her friends responded? Can I pray for you? It was as if she had cancer. Singleness is not cancer. Singleness is not a curse. And yet we treat it like it is the unbearable burden. The burden that people need to be fixed of. That's why we say, I want to fix you up with someone. Think about the words we use. So what does God's word say about singleness. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul spends an entire chapter talking about singleness and marriage. And in this chapter, do you know that Paul actually says that singleness is good? Yes, good. He then goes on and says that it's a gift. For those of you in this room that are not single anymore... Can I give you a little bit of advice? Don't keep reminding your Christian single friends that this is a gift. I know very few singles that actually like that verse. They usually don't like that verse. I don't care what Paul says that that is a gift because it sure don't feel like a gift. You know, it's kind of like, what's the return policy on that gift? Still got that, you know, the receipt, you know, what's the, you know, can I give it back like a bad person or re-gift it? You know what I mean? And I totally get that. As a single man, I'm 48 years old. It is hard being single. It is hard being unmarried. So I understand the difficulties of being married. But I, I have some people who are married, um, and I hear that marriage can be hard. Marriage has some challenges. But there's also some blessings that come with marriage in the same way singleness is not easy there are challenges that come with being single but there are also some blessings that come with being married and why is it that we only focus upon the enormous blessings of marriage and the enormous challenges of singleness you see how this is starkly inconsistent and unbiblical we can all agree that marriage is a gift hallelujah people say marriage is a gift when it comes to singleness most do not wholeheartedly agree that is a gift. Instead, you know what people say? Singleness? Whew, that's a calling, seriously. <laughs> you know, but then 
that's not anyone can be single. You have to be either Superman or Wonder Woman to be single, which I don't know if you've noticed, but most superheroes are single, and their love interest is their weakness. Again, not the best thing to be teaching our kids. And the majority of my Christian friends are married. They're happily married, but they tell me how difficult marriage can be. Giving of yourselves, let me tell you, that's not easy. Loving unconditionally, that's pretty difficult. Ephesians 5, Paul even says, Husbands, lay your life down for your wives. Amen, ladies? Amen? So, I don't know what husband that doesn't struggle with that nearly impossible calling. Lay your life down. So, do you know what I say, tongue-in-cheek? I say marriage. Whew, that's a calling, seriously. Singleness, that's a gift. I don't have to lay my life down for anyone yet. But I'm not saying that one is better than the other because that would be inconsistent. I'm not saying that singleness is better than marriage because that would be unbiblical. I'm simply looking at the full counsel of God and recognizing that godly marriage and godly singleness are two sides of the same coin. We should no longer only emphasize one over against the other because that would not be consistent. Honestly, I don't think we're ready to address this issue of sexuality until we first redeem singleness. Second, we need to be consistent regarding sexuality. What is God's standard? Oh, it's got to be heterosexuality because if homosexuality is not God's will, then it must be heterosexuality. But let's think about that. I mean, I actually know people who will counsel someone else who's coming out of same-sex relationships and counsel them to pursue their heterosexual potential. But is heterosexuality, is that a goal? Should that be the goal? Let's define heterosexuality. Heterosexuality is a pretty broad definition, so broad that um, I could be a man sleeping with half a dozen women. That's considered heterosexuality, right? I could be a married man and I'm cheating on my wife with another woman. That could also be considered heterosexuality. I could be an unmarried guy. I'm living with my girlfriend. We actually even have a couple children together. That's also considered heterosexuality. Those three scenarios that I gave you are all heterosexual but sinful in God's eyes. God would never use a category as his standard that included sin, ever. He would never do that. So if it's not heterosexuality, because it's too broad, and I know some of you might be thinking, but wait wait a second, marriage is heterosexual between a man and a woman, that's considered heterosexual? Yes, it's a form of a heterosexual relationship, but it is not representative of all forms of heterosexuality. In a world of infinite shades of gray, when the world is being ambiguous, we should not be ambiguous. Heterosexuality is too broad. It does not include every kind of indiscriminate form of heterosexuality would not be something that God would bless. He does bless the same-sex relationship. I mean, uh, He does bless an opposite-sex relationship. He does bless marriage between a man and a woman. But note that marriage is not equal to all forms of heterosexual relationships. So if it's not heterosexuality, not homosexuality, then what are our options? The biblical option. Honestly, I think that this category, this framework, heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual, heterosexuality, bisexuality, homosexuality, 
It's a purely secular framework that does not overlay onto the Christian life. I think we should take this and throw it off to the side. Well, then what should we have? Not heterosexuality, not homosexuality, but holy sexuality. And what is holy sexuality? When I read through the full counsel of God, you know there's only two paths for us to be on? One path. If you are not married, if you're single, how do you live faithful to God regarding your sexuality? You live faithful to God by being sexually abstinent. The other path is if you're no longer single and you're married, how do you live faithful to God regarding your sexuality? You live faithful to God by being faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex. So holy sexuality, two paths. It's chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. Chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. Those are the only paths that God provides for us. And note that I'm not saying options or two choices. Why? Because singleness is not a choice. It's default. Because I've never met anyone who was born married. Think about it. We just, just to be, you are, you just, you're single. You choose to get married, but oftentimes, many uh, couples, when they, maybe they're married for many, many years, if one passes away, the other one is left behind to be a widow, single, or widower, to be single, not by choice. So singleness, for most, is not a choice. Some people might choose to remain single, so holiness, holy sexuality is chastening, singleness, faithfulness in marriage. And what I like about, or what, what, what I realized was that there was no term to include both of these, chastening, singleness, faithfulness in marriage. So I created a term. And I call it holy sexuality. And what I like about this phrase is that this phrase applies to everyone. Doesn't matter if you're young or old, doesn't matter if you're a man or woman, doesn't matter if you have opposite sex attractions, same sex attractions, or both. We all need to pursue holiness. But you might be thinking, but my gay friend, they only then have one option to be single for the rest of their life. Not necessarily so. I had a friend who lived as a gay man for many years, comes to Christ, stops drinking, uh, and, you know, he didn't have any interest in girls. He belonged to a great church. They were family, came around him, support group, accountability. He became really close friends with this young lady. She came from a broken past, nothing to do with homosexuality. But she dated young men. She was sexually active. Unfortunately, she had a few abortions. And they just were able to just feel really safe with each other. There wasn't that tension that happens between a guy and a girl, you know what I mean? Like in the cafeteria here, does he like me? Does she like me? Because he knew she didn't want to date because she came from, you know, she came from broken past and she didn't want to date for a while because he really wanted to focus on, the, on her relationship with God. So the two of them felt really safe because he knew she didn't want to date and she knew that he didn't like girls. So they were like best friends. Well, after some time of being just best friends he began noticing some things about her that he never noticed before. Her hair. She smelled good and she had curves. He says, puberty is hard going through once, try going through puberty twice. <laughs> he got up enough courage, asked her out on a date. After some time of dating, he asked her to marry him. 
And on their wedding night, he's told, he told his new bride, he said, Honey, I can't explain this. I'm not attracted to any other women. I'm only attracted to you. That is holy sexuality. When God brings two people together into one flesh, that's a miracle. And when it's from God, I know that He will provide all those two people need to fulfill that covenant relationship. Holy sexuality, chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. So we need to be consistent regarding relationships, sexuality, and third, we need to be consistent regarding change. What in the world does change look like? Does change mean no longer having any of those attractions anymore? Does change mean gay to straight? Does change mean no longer having any of those temptations? If, if that's the case, do we apply that principle to anything else? Say I have a friend who was a drunk, comes to Christ, stops drinking. And after some time of sobriety, he admits that he still has urges to drink, but he doesn't. Would we tell him, you haven't been changed? We need to lay some hands on you. You need some deliverance. I hope not. Because the manifestation of God's grace is more evident in his life because he says no to his flesh daily and says yes to God. Change is not the absence of temptations. We have got it wrong to think that when you come to Christ, you'll never be tempted with sin again. Where do you find that? Not in the Bible. We will be tempted. Jesus Christ, remember, was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. He was tempted in every, in every way, the writer of Hebrew writes. But he was without sin. If Jesus, our Lord, was tempted, what makes us think we won't, we, we won't be tempted? Being tempted is not the same thing as sinning. Jesus Christ was tempted but was, not, but was without sin. So change is not the absence of temptations. But change is the spirit-wrought ability. Spirit-wrought means that it is the Holy Spirit empowering you to be, to be holy. We can't be holy on our own. It's the Holy Spirit empowering us to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because we think that God should somehow deliver us from our temptations and just take us out like so we won't ever be tempted again. That's not how God's, God works. God shows His faithfulness by carrying us through it. That's how He works. See, this is really important that we get this part right because I think for the longest time we have diagnosed this incorrectly. We have diagnosed this more to be a developmental disorder, a psychological problem. That somehow we can look into our past and find out, you know, something happened in your childhood, you know. You had an absentee father or a dominant mother or abuse in one's childhood. Anyone hear those things before? Like those are the root causes? The problem with that is it diagnoses this incorrectly. The Bible calls this sin. The diagnosis is sin, and then you know what is the, the answer, the solution? 
Christ. There's only one answer for sin. The more we try to come up with human answers, man-centered answers, we will get further and further away from the real help, the real solution. And so some of you in this room, you might have a brother or sister who's identifying as gay and maybe your parents, they feel guilty. Or maybe you in this room, maybe you have a son or daughter who's maybe even nothing to do with sexuality and, and, and they've walked away from God. And you feel guilty. What did I do wrong? I, I, if only I, you fill in the blank. Can I remind you tonight? It's not your fault. You could have been a perfect parent. Your children are still sinners. Perfect parenting never guarantees perfect children. Look at Adam and Eve. Didn't they have a perfect father? Didn't they have a perfect environment? They still rebelled. What makes you think, parent, that you could do better? You might even know families. And you look at their parents. And you're like, those parents did everything wrong. Like they were never home. Like they just, they didn't really parent. They didn't bring them to church. They didn't teach them about God. And their kids turned out great. You guys know families like that? Yeah, we hate those families, right? <laughs> Unfair. Then you might know of other families where you're like, man, those were like stellar parents. Like they did everything right. They were home for the kids. They, like, they, they taught them about the love of Christ, pointing them to Jesus. Did everything right. And then somehow their kids rebelled. You know what that tells me? Parents are not God. The job of a Christian parent, so those of you in this room, many of you will be parents. Remember this. The job of a Christian parent is not to produce godly children. The job of a Christian parent is simply to be a godly parent. You try to influence your kids, but you can't turn a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Only God can. You be godly yourself. You point your kids to Christ. Then let God do His work. Don't bear the burden that only God can bear. So we need to be convicted, leading humility. We need to be consistent in three ways regarding sexu uh, relationship, sexuality, and change. Third, you need to be compassionate. I've been teaching at Moody for 11 years, mir miraculously. And every semester I get students that confide with me. They're wrestling with their sexuality. They have same-sex attractions. And oftentimes they tell me that they've never told anyone. Like haven't told their parents, haven't told their pastor, haven't told their good friends. And because of that isolation that they feel, they often suffer with depression, even thoughts of suicide. That should move us. That we have brothers and sisters in Christ who, for whatever reason, feel that they can't share this with the rest of us. So for some, this is an issue between life and death. So what can we do to be a more compassionate, a more safe place? We talk about being safe and 
I always wonder, shouldn't the body of Christ be the safest place in the world? Are we safe? Because I don't want to actually just be safe. Safe means like I can tell whatever is on my mind and, and you can tell me whatever is on your mind, whatever you're struggling with. But then after that, would you be like, oh great, thanks for telling me. I don't think that that's what, what is what God intends. Yes, we must be safe, but we need to be safe and redemptive. I hope that we can be open about whatever was on our mind, whatever we're struggling with, but at the end of the day, we're going to point each other to Christ. That's the difference. So how do we be safe and redemptive? How do we be biblically compassionate? First, expect that this is present here. Here at Geneva College, and I know I'm probably preaching to the choir. You're here tonight, so you probably get this, but not everyone does. Some people still are surprised. Like, I still hear stories that tell me, like, this guy comes to me and he's like, man, my best friend, like, like, we grew up together. We went to grade school, we went to Iwana, we went to youth group, we even went to college together. We were, like, best buddies. And now we're, like, 30 and he tells me, like, out of the blue, he has same-sex attractions. I'm like, whoa, how did that happen? He came from a good home. His parents were Christian. He was even homeschooled. And I'm like, wait a second. Are you really saying that just because someone has Christian parents, good home, they're even homeschooled, that they're somehow exempt from struggling with sin? Is that true? Okay, newsflash. I'm sensing in this room, like right now, there's probably maybe one, maybe two, maybe even three of you in this room who's struggling with sin. <laughs> don't raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to out you. Let's be real. We're all struggling with sin, right? I mean, what's the body of Christ? Do we have it all together? Don't have any problems? We got our ducks in a row. We meet once a week. We hold hands and we sing Kumbaya. Is that what we are? In acapella. Is that what we are? <laughs> or, I have to throw that in there. Or, is the body of Christ a group of people who are broken and needy and we desperately need Christ. I'll just be honest with you. I am broken and I'm, need, I'm, need, I'm needy and I know I need Christ. Anyone else out there that relates to that at all in any way? So let us all hand in hand walk together to Him. Not because I can fix you. I can't. Not because I have the answers. I don't. But I know someone who does. And His name is Jesus. And so... I do not, I really don't think that we need to compartmentalize ourselves into different sections and just to kind of isolate ourselves into little different sin groups. I don't really think that's what we need. We don't need to be more segregated in our churches today. We don't need to sit over here, well, you're the gossiping Christians. You're the, you know, you know, whatever, jealous Christians. You're the porn addict Christians. You're the drunk Christians. You're the, no. Certainly, your sin might look a little different from his sin and her sin, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's a sin struggle. We are tempted with our flesh. And you know what unites us? Our need for Christ, Period. We need to be more united than fragmented in our churches. And to be honest, I don't really need to have someone and people around me that are just like me. I need diversity. 
I need to know that, you know what, yes, I have the struggle, but he's also struggling with something else, and it's pretty intense for him too. And it's hard, and for her, and, and I mean, we need that diversity. Not to say that it's helpful to find out something that someone else struggles with me. That's, that's very helpful. But at the end of the day, I need the body. So that's a challenge for the rest of us. Because you might, you know, you might think, man, I just, I, I, I need a, a best friend that we can just love the Lord together. And you look for someone like, just like you. I'm not fully convinced that that's what exactly we need. I need to find someone who knows exactly what I'm going through. I don't know if you'll really learn the lessons that God wants you to learn. Actually, my best friend for Moody, first of all, he's much younger than me, because I was 30-some years old going, that's why they call me Grandpa at Moody. So I was there, I lived, on the, I lived on, uh, you know, in the dorms, and he was a young guy. Never really experienced any bigot, you know, like, I mean, I, you know, I come you know, to Moody and... You know, prison, you know, drugs, HIV, all of this, you know. And I shared my whole testimony. So this is, I shared my whole testimony before we became roommates because I wanted to like forewarn him. So I, I called him up at home. He's from Washington. I called him like to let him, so he could pull out if he wanted to. Um, so I shared with him my whole testimony and his, and his mom, really godly, sweet woman. I think of her like as uh, Miss Cleaver, you know, from Leave it to Beaver. So Miss Cleaver, like really, really just a proper, godly woman, lovely, great mother. And, and she was like, oh, you know, who was that on the phone? And she's like, oh, that's my new, uh, you know, he's like, this is my roommate. He's like, oh, that's my new roommate. She's like, oh, that's so sweet. Um, and uh, he's like, yeah, he just got out of prison. <laughs> yeah, I think he had to pick her up from the floor after that. <laughs> but we need to suspect this is present here. We need to be united in our need for Christ. I think that's the thing that really should bring us together. We all need Christ. And we, we need Christ at different times of the day. We need Christ at different moments in our lives. But that is what should unite us. We don't need to be more fragmented. Second, know your position. And this is m- way more than simply saying, it's wrong, don't do it. Because that doesn't really help people in their, time of need, in, in their time of need. I mean, if there's going to be any like position, right? I mean, schools, we like to talk about positions. Churches, we like to talk about positions. And what I'm not talking about is just simply what is right or wrong. Because knowing what is right or wrong won't even save us. This is actually what I want for people to take away. If I'm going to have any position on anything, any Christian position on anything, this is like the main takeaway. My main takeaway is this. My hope is to draw people, lead people into a deeper relationship with Christ. But for what reason? I, I don't even want, I don't want people to just know Jesus, right? Like, oh, I want people to know Jesus. Demons know Jesus. It's making no difference. I'm talking about deeper relationship with Christ. But Why? So that they're willing to surrender everything to him. Everything. Oh, that's radical. Everything? Like, really? Everything? Well, hear these words from Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he, she, must deny themselves. Pick up their crosses daily and follow me. 
You know what we want to do? We want to skip over those first two things, right? We don't want to deny ourselves. We don't want to pick up our crosses. We want to follow Jesus, though. You can't. You can't without first denying yourself and picking up your cross. Oh, but that's for super Christians. Like, that's for pastors. That's for, like, missionaries. No. If anyone means if anyone. Well, I I pick up my cross. I do. Like, I have this boss at Starbucks, and she is just so mean to me. She hates Christians, and it's like, that's my burden that I have to bear. That's my cross. Do you know, in the first century, the cross never meant a burden. You know, in the first century, you know what the cross meant? The most gruesome form of death history has ever known. Pick that up and follow Jesus. Following Jesus should cost us everything. If it hasn't, you're following the wrong Jesus. This easy believism is not from God. Following Jesus is hard, but it's worth it. It's when you give up everything, I mean everything, and then He allows you to keep like some things. You know those some things are not yours. They're all His. Our position is that we need to be united with Christ. And it's about full surrender to the Lord. Third, maybe you have a friend that you've always wondered in the back of your mind whether they're wrestling with their sexuality. So you're thinking, man, I, I've, I love this brother, I love this sister, and I want to be there for them. They've never told me, but I'm kind of thinking maybe. And I, I want to walk with them through this, so how do I ask them? Don't. I mean, just think if someone came up to you out of the blue. Hey, do you have same-sex attractions? Awkward. I'll just let you know. Awkward. But what you can do is give assurance of your friendship. Tell them, tell them, I thank God for you, and I just want you to know anything you say or do won't change my love for you, my friendship with you. When you say that, you've just created this safe space and invited them in. Actually, we should be doing that with all of our close friends. In my research, my doctoral research uh, that was published is my actual second book, Giving a Voice to the Voiceless. Um, I researched uh, the where I did an online anonymous questionnaire. I had 80 students um, and alum, recent alumni from 30 different Christian colleges. And I asked them, why or why not did you... Um, open up about your sexuality when you were a student. Most people did not. And one of the main reasons why they did not was that they were afraid that they would lose some of the most meaningful friendships that they had. Give assurance of your friendship. Fourth, let's be a campus that says no to the bullying and the gay jokes. Can we do that? Can we commit to that? 
There's nothing Christ-like about making fun of someone else. Amen? There's nothing God-honoring about demeaning another person. I mean, and sometimes it's like you're making fun of someone and they're not even struggling with their sexuality, but just because they might look a little different. And I'm expecting on the college campus there might not be bullying. There may be. You know, I mean, that's more junior high. But I think sometimes the gay jokes do happen. Could be a hand gesture, could be talking with a lisp, and it could be funny for the moment. But I tell you, you never know who you're talking to, what they're struggling with. Someone might be in earshot walking by. Maybe it could be, maybe this guy, your friend, maybe he's not struggling with it, but his older brother just came out to him. And what he's thinking after you said that joke is, well, I'm definitely not telling him. We should never be viewed to be unsafe. Can we expand our vocabulary a little bit? How's that? We're in college. Let's learn some more new words. Like how about saying, you know, instead of saying that's so gay, you know, that shirt, that shirt is so gay. A shirt can't be gay. It just, it's just not possible. You know, that's so gay. How about, instead of saying that's so gay, how about that's so Baptist or that's so Presbyterian or, you know, whatever. I'm sure you could think of something very creative. So we need to be convicted, consistent, compassionate. Last, we need to be complete. And I'm talking about in our message, what we say. As Christians, we focus upon God's truth. Why? Because it's the truth that sets us free. Oh, that's, that's good. Yes, the truth sets us free. So the, what is the truth when it comes to same-sex relationships? Oh, that's easy. It's a sin. Okay, but is that all? Like anything else? No, no, it's a sin. You know when we do that? That's equivalent to giving someone a one spiritual law tract. Do, do any of you guys know like the gospel tracts? Remember that? Remember the four spiritual laws? Well, this is not the four spiritual laws. This is the one spiritual law that goes something like this. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Sorry. In case you didn't know, that's not good news. That's bad news. But if you think about it, that is the very message we've been giving to the gay community. You're a sinner. You're going to hell. There's no hope for you. It's no wonder why the gay community want nothing to do with us. Because we have not been giving them the good news. We have been telling them the bad news. We have not been sharing them the whole truth, the complete truth. We have been only telling them an incomplete truth. And you know when you tell someone an incomplete truth, that's just as harmful as telling someone a lie. So what is the complete truth? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he lists... Ten sins. And in this, in this list of ten sins are two words in the Greek that focus upon homosexual behavior. And sometimes people look at these verses and say, look, gays and lesbians won't inherit the kingdom of God. And you know when they do that, they conveniently forget about the eight other sins. Because if we look at all ten sins, none of us should inherit the kingdom of God. Bad news. But I praise the Lord, Paul did not stop there. He didn't say anything more. Instead, he says one of my favorite verses, verse 11. 
such were. What? What tense is were? Past tense. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. That is not good news. That's amazing news. That is news that we can tell anyone who needs to know about Jesus Christ. You can be washed. You can be justified. You can be sanctified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. That's amazing news. And that is news that we need to tell. We need to make sure we put the first thing as the first thing. Our gay friends, their main issue is not really their sexuality. Their main issue is to fully surrender to Christ. Do you know my biggest sin was not being in a same-sex relationship? You know what was my biggest sin? Unbelief. That is what separated me from God. So how do we as Christians be redemptive? How do we focus upon the right problem? The problem so that we can focus on the right solution. So I'm going to give some practical things here at the end before we jump into Q&A. But I'm going to make sure that we break it off into two groups. First is how do we minister to Christians who experience same-sex attractions? Christians who know and hold to biblical sexuality. But the other group would be those in the gay community who many of them don't know Christ. Some who they say they do know Christ, but they're holding to a false gospel. In that case, we need to share them the true gospel. So let's go back to this first group. Let's say you have uh, a Christian who experiences same-sex attractions. Let's say after this week, you have a classmate, a good friend of yours, maybe someone on your floor, that opens up to you, like calls you say, hey, can we talk? You go in the room, you got you alone, and they open up. Do you know what to say? Do you know what to do? I suggest one of the first things, thank them. Thank them that they just trusted you with this really private matter. The fact that they opened up to you says a lot about you. You're trustworthy. You're someone who is mature, that can understand, that gets grace. Thank them. Don't freak out. Ask for more. Tell, tell, me, tell me more. Also, ask them, how does your faith fit into this? That's probably the most important question. Because at, at every kind of major junction in our life, we need to make a decision Am I going to follow my desires or am I going to follow Jesus? That's the decision that all of us need to do. Am I going to follow my desires or am I going to follow my faith in Christ? So when you hear someone, yes, I have same-sex attractions, but how does your faith fit into this? My faith is everything. My faith is my anchor. My faith is my compass. My faith is my north star. 
And that, I'm going to use my faith to interpret my desires, not the other way around. Too, too often, we use our desires to interpret our faith. That's idolatry. Our faith needs to guide us through every storm of life. Second, tell them that they're not alone. One, another thing that I found out in my research was many Christians wrestling with their sexuality think that they have to go through life alone. That's pretty sad to think that like no one will ever understand you. And you might be thinking, well, I don't understand them. Like, I don't know, I, I don't know what it's like to have same-sex attractions. I, I often hear people that come to me and they said, man, you know, this good friend of mine opened up to me and like, I have no idea what to tell them. I, I don't have same-sex attractions myself. So, so I can't help them. And that might seem logical until we actually think about it. Because when is it that we actually have to struggle precisely with a sin to help another sinner in that sin? When is that? Like, do you have to shoot up with heroin to help a heroin addict? Yes or no? Good, thank you. No. Do you have to look at pornography to help a porn addict? Yes or no? No. Do you have to commit adultery to help an adulteress? Yes or no? No. And yet, for some reason, all of a sudden, with this sin problem, like, oh, I don't know how to help them because I don't have same-sex attractions myself. You know what that is? That's a lie from Satan. Satan wants to immobilize you into thinking you can't help another believer. And I'm not talking about that you should read up, you should ask, you should, you know, learn. That's, I'm, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying don't allow Satan to immobilize you. If you follow Christ... And if you've had any victory over your own sin, you can help another sinner. Amen? The problem is sin. Christ is the answer. Let's focus upon the real problem so we can focus upon the real solution. Third, help remind each other... Honestly, this could probably be the most important part. If you're taking notes, like circle it, like big. This could be the most important thing of everything at the end. I don't know of any other sin issue where we have conflated sin with who we are. If you're a liar, that's what you do, not who you are. If you gossip, that's what you do, that's not who you are. If you... Struggle with porn. That's not who you are. That's what you do. Yet for some reason, when it comes to sexuality, we've made sexuality who we are. Sexuality is not who we are. It's how we are. Big difference. We have to completely rewire our brains when it comes to how we think about sexuality. I, mean, I even still get this question. So after, you know, you heard my testimony today. You know, I said, I'm not gay, I'm not ex-gay, I'm not straight. And you know what are the main first questions? And, I, and I'm sorry if this could be your question, but oftentimes I get this question. So, are you still gay? It's like, let's think through these terms. Gay is not who I am. Yes, I might experience these attractions, but that's not who I am. Since when do we put who we are solely 
based on our attractions. I don't know of anything where we have made it who we are. Like, I don't think it's so... I'm not just talking about the term gay or, you know... I'm also saying the term straight. Don't identify as straight. That's not who you are. Yes, that could be what you experience. Honestly, these terms, same sex, don't define the person. They define our desires. Do you see the difference? Huge difference. But we've taken these terms, gay, straight, homosexual, heterosexual, to define what? People. They really don't define people. They define desires. Certainly, they're people desires, but still, that's the difference. I mean, so if my mom... My precious mom, if she introduced herself, say, hi, I'm Angela, I'm straight. Who cares? Like, I would be like, I think I would just drop dead then. I'm like, what? (laughs) You know what really matters? Are you following Jesus? Are you dying yourself daily or not? That is what matters. We need to put our identity in Christ. And actually, it's not just sin issues that we put our wrong identity in. We put, a lot of us, we put, I think many of us are walking around with the wrong identity. You could be an athlete, and that's your whole world. Honestly, that isn't who you are. That's what you enjoy, that may be what you do. Or maybe you're a musician, or maybe you have a hobby, I don't know what it could be. Maybe you love you know, singing, or so I'm a singer. Okay, that's, but is that truly who you are? Even a parent. I know some mothers that their whole world is wrapped around their children and when the children go off to college, what happens? They have a crisis. Who am I? We all struggle with that question and how we answer that question, listen to this, how we answer the identity question affects the way we live greatly. Who we are affects how we live. If you have the wrong identity, you will have a wrong morality. Identity is everything, I believe. And I think before we address and talk to our gay friends about morality, we have to talk about identity. It doesn't make sense to talk about sinful behavior. If they're not hearing, like when we talk to you know, your gay friend and you say, well, this is sin, they don't hear you saying what they're doing is sin. You know what they hear you saying? They hear you saying that their whole person is sin. They can't separate their behavior, their sexuality, their desires from who they are. So I think we just need to begin talking about who, who are you? Tell me more. So when you say you're gay, what does that mean? So is that truly like who you are, the core of who you are? Or is that what you experience, your desires? And should we put our desires in who we are? That's a great conversation to have. And you won't, I don't think, really get into an argument. You talk about sin, and bam, I mean, you just put up this wall. Talk about so, uh, identity in Christ. Fourth, be realistic. Don't give these false promises. Like, I don't know where this kind of, you know, kind of evangelistic thing is, you know, come to Jesus, he'll take care of all your problems. Where do you find that in the Bible? He'll take care of all your problems? Like, it's just an easy cakewalk, come to Jesus? I mean, yes, I mean, yeah, take my yoke upon you, but that doesn't mean that you won't have any problems. You still have, you know, it's his yoke that you're carrying. You're a servant to Christ now. I often tell people, it was easier before I became a Christian. To be honest, it was. I did whatever I wanted. I had an itch, I scratched it. I had a desire, I did it. 
Now I have a heavenly father that I want to please. And I have an enemy nipping at my heels. But you know the difference? Is my hope, my joy is not bound up in this world. My contentment is not dependent upon what happens to me or not. My hope is bound up in the rock. The gospel is costly, but it's worth it. Fifth, don't focus on the externals. Like it used to be where we would focus so much upon, well, if a guy is kind of like, you know, maybe a little bit effeminate, like we'll teach him how to walk, like how to throw a football, catch a football or whatever, you know, throw a baseball, hit a, you know, or like maybe a, a woman, you know, who's maybe a little bit more bush, so we, you know, teach her how to walk in heels. Or What does that have to do with following Christ? Not much. And you know what I'd much rather see? Change from the inside out. That's how the gospel works. I don't want to see change from the outside in because that doesn't really last or work. I want to see change from the inside out. Sixth, we need to deepen and encourage relationships within the spiritual family. I think there's been kind of a movement talking about spiritual friendship and I think that's important that we talk about this concept of friendship. But as I studied it more from my book, I realized that this that there really was an absence of a theology of friendship in the Bible. The Bible does not talk about friendship. And it does not kind of develop that concept. Not to say that they weren't friends, and not to say that we shouldn't be friends. I'm just saying I'm, I'm a biblical, a theological concept of friendship. It's lacking. Oh, what about David and Jonathan? That's, that's kind of the quintessential example of two men being best friends. If you read the Old Testament, never once are David and Jonathan called friends. Ever. You know what they call each other? Brothers. So I think actually what the Bible is developing is the concept of brotherhood and sisterhood. You can't get out of a single New Testament book without the concept of brotherhood and sisterhood. Actually, it's a concept of family. That's why I'm talking about not spiritual friendship, but spiritual family. Why spiritual family? What's the difference? Huge difference. Friendship focuses what? Like on two or three people. Like it focuses inward. Family? Yes, you're going to be developing these, you know, maybe special brotherhood, sisterhood bonds, but it's always in the context of Family, and what's a family? And I'm not talking about just like you and your friends. Because I do hear this a lot, you know, even at Moody. Like, you know, my students, some of the students, you know, you guys are millennial. They're like, I don't need, you know, I don't need to go to church. You know, the church is not a building. It's people, right? How does that go? The church is not building. It's whatever. I didn't go to Juana or whatever, right? It's the guy, the steeple. It's inside people. Um, uh, I probably totally messed it up. Something like that, right? You, got, you, you know what I'm talking about, people. Um, so the church is about people. So that's true. So they're like, I don't need to go to church. It's, it's you know, it's, it's about people. And so me and my friends, we are the church. Like me and my best friends, so me and my group of friends, so we don't need to go to church. You guys kind of heard something like that before? I don't need to go to church. Me and my friends, you know, we, we meet several times a week and we, you know, have fellowship and accountability. So we are the church. The problem with that is you and your friends 
You're not the church. You're not the body of Christ. You're a part of the body of Christ. There's a big difference. As a matter of fact, you and your friends, probably you're just a bunch of right hands. Or maybe a bunch of like left toes. Maybe a bunch of like earlobes. That's not the body of Christ. We need total diversity to make up the body of Christ. We need headship. We need pastors. We need elders. We need people preaching at us. That's, that's the body of Christ. Daily meeting together weekly. I doubt, I doubt that you and your friends, you preach to each other. If you did, that would be kind of weird. But I mean, I, you know, I don't know of friends who do that. I don't know of friendships where like discipline happens. That happens in the church. It's so important that when we are dealing with not only this issue of same-sex attractions, when we're dealing with any sin issue, when we're dealing with discipleship, it happens best in the context of the church. So that, that might even be a challenge to you all here. Here at Geneva. Because... I find it interesting where we think we can like go off to school and then it's like, well, where should I go to church on Sunday? Like as if that's just an after. Like, like we just think, oh, it's Sunday. Where do I go to church? If we truly love Christ, you must also love the body of Christ. I want to actually challenge and encourage all of you in this room, if you're not really connected with a local church here at Geneva at your time, because you're like, well, I'm just a student here. Yeah, but you're here nine months out of the year. If you're not connected with a local church, get connected. If you're not, why not? If you're not, then you're not lifting up the body of Christ, which is equivalent to not lifting up Christ. Get connected to a church. Even think about joining a local church here. Why? I mean, you're here for nine months. Get connected. Serve. Come under the leadership of pastors and elders of whatever church. Take it seriously. The church is the vehicle that Christ gave us to be a part of the body, to communicate the gospel, and for ministry to, to occur in that context and headship and discipleship. So, we need to deepen these strengths. I needed to learn how to love another man in the way that God intended, as a brother in the Lord, not as a lover, not as a sexual partner. Then how do we share Christ with those in the gay community? Let, let me, before I jump in to say what we should do, here's things that you should not do. Do not compare this with an addiction, pedophilia, or murder. That's just not a good way to win people to Christ, so you know. Also, don't use these two words, lifestyle and choice. Christians, we use these words all the time. I never use those words as a gay man, ever. And do you know why? I had the wrong identity. Everything stems from identity. Wrong identity, wrong thinking. This wasn't, who I, this wasn't what I did. This wasn't a lifestyle that I chose. I saw this purely as who I am. And when you use these two words, lifestyle or choice... It can be offensive to some. And I'm willing to not offend someone for the sake of hopefully winning them to Christ. Third, don't say love the sinner, hate the sin. Just do it. Don't say it. I mean, when you tell someone, I love you, but I hate your sin, they don't feel loved. They really don't. Say it. Don't do it. And even, maybe... 
you have a friend, maybe you're a parent and, and maybe you have a good friend that opens up to you and, they, and, and they're not like going the route of, hey, my faith is my anchor and they're just like, they're embracing it, they're in same-sex relationships. And, and you do say this, I love you, you know, I love you no matter what. And oftentimes you know what we followed up with? But. When you say but, you've just erased everything that you just said. Save the but for later. Hopefully you'll be having more conversations. I'm not saying you don't say, you know, this is whatever you want to say, this is not God's will, I love you, you know, but save that for later, just listen. Um, so don't say love the sinner, hate the sin. Uh, also, don't feel the need that you have to debate with people all the time. Yes, we are called to defend the truth, but don't do that offensively. Don't do that combatively. We don't always have to be the one that defends the truth. Look at the example of Jesus. He did not answer every question. Think about it. Go, go through the Gospels next time. Sometimes he was silent. Many times he answered a question with a question. You know, um, should we pay taxes? Show me a coin. What image, what likeness do you see on the coin? Do you remember that? Give to Caesar what Caesar's, give to God what, what's God's. Like, he didn't even answer, he, he didn't even, he answered the more important question. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes he just avoided it, or, or he gave an answer to another question. He's God. Because we know, convincing people of morality will not save them. Let's just say, like, they, they, they believe you. Okay, this is wrong, this is sin. They're still lost. What we need to know is the most important thing, and that's a Christ. Like you could say, you know, if people ask you, do you think this is sin? You could say, you know, I, one, I know you don't believe in God, so what does it matter what God thinks? So let's first talk about God, the existence of God, and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's more important. Or you could even say, you know, do you think this is sin? You could say, well, you know, I value getting to know you more in our friendship than debating. Can we focus on our similarities and tolerate our differences? So what should you do? We'll just finish with this. We need to pray. Pray and fast. My mother fasted every Monday for seven years. She once fasted 39 days on my behalf. Are you fasting for the gay community? Are you praying? How many of you guys know the movie War Room? You guys saw the movie War Room? So that movie was written and produced by the Kendrick Brothers. And the Kendrick Brothers worked with Chris Fabry to write the book. The book was published uh, by Tyndale House. We actually got a complimentary copy. We opened it up and on their, acknowledge, uh, on their dedication page, uh, Chris Fabry dedicated that book to my mom. Do battle for people who can't stand in the gap for themselves. Let's pray. Let's pray for the gay community. We will pray for unreached people groups overseas, but will we, will we pray for the unreached people group on our doorstep, the gay community? Second, listen. Don't be quick to speak, but be quick to listen. I think that's one of the best ways, like pre-evangelism, is you're just listening. Oh, well, you know, if they begin talking about their gay partner or whatever, you know, just listening doesn't mean that you're condoning. 
when you listen to their story, they're more likely to then listen to your story. Third, be intentional. Don't be afraid to go across the street, invite your gay neighbor over for dinner or whatever it is. Oh, wait, but if I do, am I condoning their sin? Good question. But here's the truth. We usually have sinners over for dinner. Nothing new. You're just eating with them. You're not sitting with them. There's a big difference. Fourth, be patient and persistent. It took time for God to soften my heart and heart. I mean, I was fighting against God. Nothing to do with God. I was stubborn, hard-headed. Like, and I even look. Actually, I think eight years is a short time. I know people who've been praying for decades. If God was in it in the long haul with you, should we not do the same for others? Lastly, be transparent. Share what God is doing in your life. If you like walk up to your gay friend and you pull out your Bible, you know what they're going to do? I'm out of here, right? They're going to run. Or they're going to get, you know, they're going to hunker down and start arguing with you. But you know what they can't argue with? The work of God in your life today. If you follow Christ, you shouldn't be the same as you were 10 years ago, 10 months ago, or even 10 weeks ago. God should be continually transforming you. Talk about that. Talk about even the doubts and fears that you have. Be real. Do you know, I would never have considered the gospel if I didn't see the gospel lived out in my parents' lives. I wouldn't have picked up the Bible from the trash can. You remember that? How crazy that is? The trash can. I wouldn't have picked it up if I didn't see the Bible lived out in my father's life and my mother's life. I did not leave pursuing same-sex relationships because my parents convinced me they were sinful. No. I left it because they showed me something better. And his name is Jesus. Our job as followers of Christ is to show a dying world out there that no matter what they're clinging to, all the fool's gold in the world, a job, career, money, or even good things like children or a spouse or family, not only is Jesus better than all of that, but Jesus is best. So may we live our lives in a way that it is unmistakable that not only is following Jesus better, but it is best. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us the pearl of great price. Thank you that you have given us the greatest gift the world has ever known, and it is your only begotten Son. God, help us in our lives, in big ways and in small ways. Show those around us, show the world that following Jesus, there's nothing better. God, we praise you. We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Christopher.
Uh, we appreciate you being with us tonight. We have time for just a couple questions, so I wonder if there are any questions that you have. I hope you can find the question in this. Uh, I've kind of been putting together a couple of thoughts. Uh, before I came here, my biggest question, I think, was that Rosaria Butterfield actually had a chance to come and talk as well. And I'd been here a couple of years ago when you were here. Um, she chose a different path. She chose to get married. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have, uh, in lieu of all the things you've talked about with singleness and finding our identity in Christ, uh, for those in this room that probably do so- struggle with same-sex attraction, um, you being one of the biggest representatives as far as Christians in the church who have gone through same-sex attraction, uh, you chose singleness. Mm-hmm. What about for those that are thinking, you know, that's not a path I want to take? I would think of taking a heterosexual marriage uh, and then fulfilling uh, your calling in Christ through that. Yeah. So, great question. Um, I would, and I would need to double check with Rosario. She's a very good friend of mine. Then um, you know, you said so. She chose marriage, and I, I chose singleness. I, I know how I would answer, and I would need to double check with her. But I would guess she would almost answer the same way. I think she might say that she didn't choose that; that it was part of God's will. That, uh, in a sense, and, and same thing for me. I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm choosing singleness. I'm. I would say. That God has, that's his will for me now. Um, so my answer to people in this room that are, you know, maybe kind of at this crossroads, you know, how, how do I live? I would, my point is do God's will. Because I could choose to be single and that might not be God's will. He might want me to marry. You know what I mean? But, and Dorzaria, maybe she would choose to marry, but it might be God's will for her to be single. So I think the most important thing, actually this is totally applicable to everyone here. Don't just do because everyone is getting married. Don't just do because it's, you know, ring by spring. Seek out God's will. Is it God's will for you to marry with this person or not? Um, and for us to know God's will... The closer we are to him, I think the easier it is to hear his voice. Um, not to say that it will just be totally easy, because it's, it's always going to be hard, but it's really the more that we are fostering that daily intimacy with Christ, and I'm going to point back again to the church, the more we're connected with the local church and having people speak into our lives, pastors, elders, accountability partners, mentors, and we're listening to godly counsel, I think the more we'll be able to discern God's will. So I would just say I don't necessarily have an answer for everyone, but I think God does, and I would say uh, seek what is God's God's will for you today. Don't don't try to overplan your life. Like for me, I tried planning out my life, and you see where that got me. So I just stopped doing that, and I'm just God. This is my tomorrow. This is my next month. I mean, I, actually, I'm not even saying next month. I'm just saying, God, this is my tomorrow. I don't know. You do. You have given me this day today, and I know that today I am single. I'm not married, and I'm just going to live fully as a single man, all sold out for Christ today. What happens tomorrow, I don't know. Which, by the way, if you're kind of in that situation, like if something comes up tomorrow, I want to get married right away. Tomorrow would be a little bit fast. Wait more than the day, maybe. Uh, I know it's Geneva, and you know you don't want to let things slip out of your hands. But one day would be a little fast, you know. Maybe wait a few months, maybe a year. But anyway, you know, But just I just say, just just leave it open. Um, we 
and I'm not just saying me, we all tend to overplan our life. We tend to think, oh my goodness, you know, and it doesn't even have to do with this struggle with same-sex attractions. Like, man, I'm struggling with just porn, and it's just killing me, and I know it's, it's not pleasing to God. I just don't know if I could do this for 30 years. You're right. You can't do it for 30 years. God has not given you enough grace to go through 30 years, but he has given you enough grace to go through today. So just focus on today, whatever your struggle is, because the majority of you are not wrestling with this. Some of you are. Uh, but just because I don't have the answer for you. I can't pick you up and say, you can do it. But I can tell you what God has spoken to me is that my, my grace is sufficient enough for you today. Um, and so I think I, I would just live with that openness. And that's why I like this holy sexuality view. That is both. Live with both wide open. Right now you find yourself today here as a single man or single woman and live fully for God in that context. If by chance, so leave that open. This is why I don't identify as a celibate. I, I, I wouldn't you know, say I'm a celibate Christian man uh, because celibacy means a lifelong chosen vocation. I didn't choose this for one. I don't know if it's lifelong because I can't see the future. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. Um, and I don't see this necessarily as a vocation. Um, vocation is more of a kind of a Roman Catholic understanding, but I do see this as the, the, the New Testament doesn't talk about this as a vocation. He does talk about a gift, as I talked about. First uh, Corinthians 7, when he does talk about a call, it's not a call to be single, but it's a call of salvation. In other words, what Paul is saying is, um, What's more important than being slave or free? What's more important than uh, being circumcised or uncircumcised? What's more important than being married or single? Is your call of salvation. That is what is the most important thing that should guide you in any situation, whether difficult or not. In the any back there. Questions? All right. Make him run faster, fast enough. Um, since it tends to be that like sexual sins, um, including homosexuality and other sins, are kind of more of a almost like an off limits topic in mm. the church. Like we don't hear about it, we don't talk about it, yeah. we don't hear people share their stories very often. And I think it can be a lot harder for people to deal with those things when they don't see other people talk about it yes and like how would you suggest that like we start bringing these things not just personally between each other but within the church and within the church family so i think in general we need to kind of just just peel away our masks and stop pretending to be perfect um because no one is and i, I think we need to be real and transparent with not just this, but and then see, because when we see transparency and then we see grace extended, that is like the best kind of soil to be able to talk about just other things. Um, so, you know, we need to be agents of grace. We need to be examples of transparency done well. Um, know how to like, I think it's important even talk like, how do you share with others about your struggle? I mean, I think. We need to talk about that struggle, but also talk about, um, you know, what is our goal through our struggle? Like, because I know some people are like, well, you know, I've got the struggle with porn, or I've got the struggle with same-sex attraction, or whatever it is, or I've got the struggle with, you know, whatever, being, you know, me and my girlfriend are, we're, we're being, you know, uh, you know, we're going a little too far, whatever it is. 
but then they leave it there, and then you, and that doesn't really tell us, like, well, what's your intent with this? And like, you know, so I think that's important to tell people too. Like, I, I know people who will share with their parents, and like, well, I have same-sex attractions, and then that's like, it's, it is kind of a bombshell to parents, but then they don't tell them like, but I'm committed to walk with Christ, you know, but I know that this is not God's will, and it, it's, it's strong, I'm struggling, but my hope is to follow Christ, you know, whatever that is. I think that's important, that when we share and be transparent, that's helpful. But also we need to extend grace. Uh, and so this is general uh, overall, and I know it's hard on the Christian college campus because we kind of give this perfectionism, you know, mentality. Uh, but also, I think there's a fear when it comes to um, the student co- covenant, or what do you guys call it, the community standard, or community standard, is that what that you guys call it? Like one person knows. So that thing you guys sign or whatever, you know, right? Is there a thing that you guys sign? So anyway, the thing that you're supposed to follow. I think there's sometimes a fear that simply struggling that you'll kind of get reprehended or disciplined or kicked out. Um, and that's just not true. Um, and, I mean, even, I don't know, I should, maybe I should. From what I know from other schools, um, generally, even if you um, are caught doing something, like even in behavior, uh, it really depends on your heart. Like, I mean, if you're at a place of repentance um, and brokenness, I know schools that work with you. I mean, I, schools, you know, we're not here to just catch you and kick you out and police you. I mean, we want to see you grow into men and women of God. And that means some scars. That means some bumps. Um, but it just depends on your attitude. But if you're like, well, who cares? I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. So what? That's going to be different than someone else. It's like, you know what, you know, confessing and, and repenting. That's quite different. might be the same behavior, but your attitude, you know. So, so anyway, I don't, but my point to you is um, know that here in Geneva, simply struggling with something, um, and, and even if you've, you know, given in or fallen or whatever, uh, slipped up, um, it's how you, your approach and your attitude to it that the school, you know, I, from what I understand, you know, will will come alongside you and work with you, because you know the goal isn't to just punish people and kick them out, but it's to grow people, not just to be students, um, but to be men and women of God. So uh, you kind of made a joke about you know. Comp- when you invite them into your fan, like your dinner parties or something, it's like, oh, you're accepting it. But on a real note, uh, I have a cousin who is having a wedding pretty soon. Yeah. And I struggle a lot with, should I go? Yeah. And it's a gay wedding, mm-hmm. and it's with uh, a pastor. And I just want to know how you would handle that. It's, so your your cousin is marrying a pastor? But no, no, no. <laughs> no, in, it, in a church setting. Oh, it's, okay, it's done in a, in a church setting. So the gay wedding is done in a, in a church setting. Yeah. Exactly. So should you go or should you not go? Exactly. So I'm, I'm asked this question pretty much everywhere I go. Um, so if you want to go to the next question over here. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I actually, to be honest, I don't. 
I don't feel like that I can give you, I tell you, you must go where you should not go. I do believe this is something uh, you need to pray. In fact, there's two main things that are important here in your relationship with your loved one. Do they know what you believe? Sim- I'm, not, I'm not just talking about this is, you know, same-sex relationships are sinful. I'm talking about uh, you believe in a triune God. You believe that we're all sinners. You know, Christ is the one who redeems us. You know, do they know what we believe in that sense? But also, do they know that we still love them? So if you don't go, it's really clear what you believe. But it really could be misunderstood that you love them. If you do go, boy, it's clear you love them. But maybe it could be misunderstood what you believe. So kind of the decision that we make, really, these two things can be intention. Um, I think you need to pray and fast. Obviously, same-sex marriage... The couple, that is not God's will. But presence, is that, does that mean that you're condoning? So I would pray and fast. And if God is telling you not to go, I wouldn't tell, if, I don't know how close you are with this, you know, uh, this relative. You should say it was your cousin or something? Yeah, so I don't know how close you are. If you're not that close, that might be easier. But if someone that you are close, um, or if it's a close friend, or maybe, uh, you know, your brother or sister, if if God is calling you not to go, um, I would not tell them over the phone, through a text, email. I would tell them in person. Like, this is someone that's really important to you, that, that they deserve a face-to-face conversation. And I would uh, show love to their partner, too. Their partner needs to know Christ as well. I, um, but the question that I posed before is, does presence equate condoning or celebration in general that is that would be true um most people who go to a wedding they're there to celebrate they're there to condone they're 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 approving of this relationship but not always i mean for example if you look at some weddings uh in-laws they will be there and not always do they approve and the couple clearly knows that the you know that the in-law might not approve but they're still there so that my point only saying is presence doesn't necessarily equate uh condoning but on the other side so I'm kind of going back and forth on the other side we need to also realize how the bible views marriage and weddings in particular um as a big metaphor, uh, a biblical metaphor, whether from Genesis all the way to Revelation, uh, this concept uh, that points to God, uh, points to Christ and the church. And so when we kind of play with this concept, especially like you say, in a church, even though of course, it's, I mean, it would have to be a liberal church, it can't be an evangelical church, they're still playing God and pretending like God would bless it, uh, that would be difficult. So to be honest, for me, I would have a very hard time going to an actual liberal church uh, that would be performing a gay wedding. Um, But I also want to leave it open, like even for parents and their children, because I know parents who, if they don't go, that's like the complete end of the relationship. So I actually know some parents who will maybe not go to the ceremony, but they'll go to the reception. You know, it's a free dinner, why not? Go there. Um... (laughs) And maybe, you know, and, and I've, you know, talked with parents and, and told them maybe, you know, during the ceremony, be ready. Like, there are just aspects of the ceremony that I won't be able to participate in. Uh, toasting to the couple. I mean, that's a clear kind of like, yeah, do the t- couple. And I just 
I wouldn't be able to do that. I wouldn't like sit there, you know, like that. I just, I just would sit out. Um, going through the line, you know, congratulations, I'm so happy for you. I can't say those things, but I can say I love you. You know, the difference between affirming the person as opposed to affirming the couple. Those are things that I could do. Getting them a, a gift. I wouldn't get them one gift for the couple. I'd get them two separate gifts for the individuals. Um, get them something like really significant that's meaningful, that's, you know, that can have a Christian meaning. That, get them my book. You never know. They could read it. I mean... <laughs> Great. Is there another question over here? Yeah. So I have several close friends of mine that are um, that are Christians, but um, they actively condone and, or um, even advocate um, for same-sex marriage or yep. just gay couples in general. And um, like, I love these people very much. Um, yeah. What would be like the best approach to like talking to them about it? Or like, I don't want to be like uh, condemning or any way, but like something to convict their heart, like to think otherwise. Yeah, I would say, in general, uh, those who have um, revised kind of how the church has, has understood biblical sexuality, um, that their view of sexuality is not really the biggest issue. Um, if you press further and look further, usually um, it's the authority of Scripture. Like, when we look at Mainline denominations. Um, I mean, even like the United Methodist Church, miraculously, they confirmed biblical sexuality yesterday. I was shocked. Um, but honestly, their view of sexuality is not their biggest problem now. I mean, they're just dealing with a the symptom. They're not dealing with a core issue in general, the denomination in the U.S., I'm not talking about in Africa or Asia or wherever, but in the U.S., uh, the UMC in general, and, and there's some US, UMC churches that, that are standing firm, but in general, the UMC has walked away from biblical authority decades ago. Um, so the issue is always biblical authority. So I would actually even stay away from the sexuality question because... They're probably pretty prepared. They probably read up on it. Like they probably won't read their Bible, but they will read up on books like gay affirming books. You know, um, and so like Matthew Vine's book will be their Bible. You know, James Ryan, those type of things would be like that's all, that's what they read, and they read more of that than 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 scripture. But if you press and, and find out like their 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 view of you know of scripture and the Old Testament, you'll find that they have a pretty distorted understanding of, of Scripture. And you know what that impacts? When you have a low view of Scripture... Uh, uh, here's another thing. I know people like Matthew Vines who will say, I have a high view of Scripture. But if you look at every person that they quote, none of them hold to inerrancy. None of them. Uh, so you can't say you hold to a high view of Scripture and then cite everyone who holds to, doesn't hold to inerrancy. And, do, and you can't say you have a high view of Scripture and everyone you read and everyone you cite has a low view of Scripture. <laughs> um, but what happens when you have a low view of Scripture? You know what that distorts? That distorts the Gospel. The Gospel is no longer about sinful man in need of a Savior. It's become just the social Gospel. Do good. Be good. So I would focus upon 
what do you believe about the Bible? Like, wh- where does the Bible stand? Are there errors or not? Uh, and then what is the gospel? You know, is the gospel just about being good people? Another thing that I would even kind of maybe go to um, is this. I would say, is this a sin or not? Let's just say, for argument's sake, that it doesn't matter. Because almost, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. Because if this gay couple, let's just say it is not a sin, for argument's sake, they're still sinners. Right? I mean, so let's just say for argument's sake, a gay couple and homosexuality is blessed by God. They're still sinners. They still need Christ. And so if we actually, you know, are we truly saying that everyone is a sinner or not? Do we need to die to self daily or not? Um, I think that's where it comes down to. You know, I, there's several kind of gay Christian groups. And honestly, from what I see, they're more gay than they are Christian. Are we more Christian than everything else? That's why I don't put any permanent modifier before my main identity in Christ. I'm Chinese, as you can tell. I'm Asian, as you can tell. I don't identify as an Asian Christian. I identify as a Christian. Um, I'm male, right? Obviously, I'm male. I don't identify as a male Christian. That's All these other modifiers that we can put before my, our main identity in Christ limit who I am as a follower of Christ. So I don't want there to be any permanent modifier that limits. Um, but that's what I would focus on. The authority of Scripture, what is the Gospel? Because, because that Gospel answers, you know, are we truly all sinners or not? Because let's just, you know, just put this off on the back burner. For argument's sake. Your gay friend is still a sinner. Please join me in thanking Christopher for being with us today. And you're dismissed. <laughs>